You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is writer Calvin Kasalki. Last year, his debut novel, Several People Are Typing, became a breakout hit, which Max Berry called a laugh-out-loud funny slice of unglued genius about the triumphs and tyranny of the online workplace, and Hilary Leichter described as a Greek chorus of modern strife. In addition to his achievements as a novelist, Calvin is the recipient of a Lambda Literary Fellowship in playwriting, and his writing and reporting have been published in Vice, Smell Magazine, and DC Comics, among others. Calvin Kosulke, we're delighted to have you here. Welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like we should at least acknowledge the fact that two minutes before we turned this on, we were talking about what weird energy we're going to have in this episode today. And I think that's totally appropriate for this book. Yeah, I think so. We both had like slightly weird and unexpected like evenings so far. And I think (laughs) I think that's the right way to go into this is both being slightly on tilt and and just a little a little weird. I think it's going to I think it's going to totally match what. Uh, it seems like the book is done to a handful of people, so that'll be that'll be good. That'll be that'll be perfect. Yeah. So so let's talk about that. The premise of several people are typing is that an employee at an ad agency, Gerald, gets stuck in Slack. Literally, where did that idea come from for you? I had had uh, like early drafts, like bad sort of experimental blog posts about a guy getting stuck in the internet, and it was a thing with, between him and his roommate. Hmm. Um, but the internet writ large was too large like it was too big a too big a thing to tackle um brandon taylor's actually written a really great essay called i read your little internet novels about how novels putatively about the internet are only about one per, like a particular slice of the internet for a particular kind of person which is right. usually like you know the author can only really write about the internet that they're familiar with right and he talks about how like he does not have the kind of you know angst about Twitter that like, you know, you might see in uh, Nobody's Talking About This, which is right. not, not not Patricia Lockwood catching strays or anything, but just they have two different experiences of it. So when the idea for the Slack thing, kind of the penny dropped for that, because I myself was an employee at a, at a PR agency, um, that seemed like it was a more contained way to tell this story that I'd been fumbling with and had put away years ago. Um, and the idea of sort of limiting the scope of the digital to just Slack, like that restriction actually opened up a lot about the story for me. And I think it's important for us to note that uh, you actually wrote this book in what, spring 2019, even though it came out last year. And obviously, like, we can see why that would be a big thing for people last year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote it in winter, winter, spring of 2019. And, um, you know, uh, sent it around some places, didn't get a lot of traction with it. And I was like, okay. And then I, I still, you know, edited it, you know, like I put it away, then I edited it a little bit like the next winter-ish. And then 2020 happened. I was like, I wonder if, I mean, you know, this was a couple months into it when I was like, oh, okay, this we're, this is going to be a while, huh? Um, I wonder if anybody has downloaded Slack since <laughs> maybe wonder. this all started. And it <laughs> turned out some people had. So uh, it got, it got, you know, I've been trying to avoid it. You know, there's only so much you can do in terms of, being like it's not a pandemic novel but also the only reason anybody seems to have wanted to publish it is because of of the pandemic so it is an interesting it is a double-edged sword but i did i didn't write it beforehand i promise well i think there's something wild about like a wild interaction between that sort of bit of like marketing related like marketing related rationale and the fact that Mm -hmm. you are 
in a lot of ways, primarily a playwright and journalist. And this is a book that is very play-like, but is published as a novel. Can you talk about that? It is a really long script, isn't it? Uh, no, I, um, yeah, my, my background is mostly in, is in script writing and playwriting and dialogue heavy pieces of all forms. I guess journalism is also mostly just listening to people talk and then <laughs> turning that into, you know, go, going and being like, hey, I don't know enough about this, do you? And then listening to people who are smarter than me about something talk and then transmogrifying their quotes into a, into a piece. Um, so all of that is very dialogue intensive. So the idea of putting it in Slack allowed me to sort of play to what I feel that my strengths are, which are how people talk, whether that be verbally aloud, I'm doing hand gestures for for mouths that people can't see, or how they talk to each other online. Man, it's just so much fun is the thing. I've got nothing against prose. Prose is great. I, I'm writing other stuff in prose, but it is such a blast to play out conversations between people and to be able to do some set pieces in text form, if that makes yeah. sense, to be able to sort of still use the space of Slack the way that you would use the space of a stage or the space on a screen. Um, and to think about blocking on the page and, and, and how the rhythms look, it just, it lets you really dial in on what is on the page because what is on the page is also where all the drama is taking place in a very literal way. And that's a lot of fun. We're going to talk a lot more about, about the sort of playwriting qualities of this um, after after we have a chance to play a clip. But be, before we move on from this entirely, I just, I'm curious, I, I love that you said that writing dialogue is fun. And I'm curious why that's something that captures your interest so much, why conversations are such a big fascination point for you. Yeah, I, I think you can do a lot with it. I mean, I, I, I'm tempted to do a highfalutin answer right now, but really <laughs> it is, once I have a sense of the characters, it is very, very easy to set them sort of to just let those conversations fly. Like once I know what somebody's voice is, it is very easy to put them all in a room and just sort of play out what that's going to be. Um, like I tend to, when I'm outlining scenes, I tend to wind up writing snippets of dialogue as mm. part of the outline because I can already, even just thinking about what is literally going to happen, I you can start hearing the chatter going <laughs> and, and trying yeah. to capture it. So it mostly, I would love to give you an answer about all of the subtext and 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 the exchanges and the emotional, you know, you can obviously do a lot in dialogue that is, is all of the showing and none of the telling, even though it's people doing the telling with each other. But in truth, it is just the thing that comes most naturally to me. And it is the thing that I find myself trying to capture. And when I can, when I can hear everybody talking, it's really how I know that a piece is ready to go from the sort of outlining stage into the like, okay, we got to get this out of here because these people are getting loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to get the voices out of your head at a certain point, right? Yeah. Oh, it's it's an exorcism. It, it goes from an idea to an exorcism very, very quickly. Well, I want to talk a little bit about office novels in general, because there's so many of them. As I was prepping for this interview, I started rereading Bartleby the Scrivener because I was like, I just, <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't think about this and like not go there. Um, but of course, right, like the stories that we tell about work and this one very much included, um, they tend to have these surreal elements, right? Like even Bartleby, which is, you know, 1850s novel, <laughs> right? Uh, Pre-surrealism in, in uh, almost every sense of the term has a surreal quality just by virtue of like how how strange Bartleby's boss finds his, what he describes as passivity. So I'm kind of curious why you think that happens in the in novels about work in in the way that we talk about work like why do we approach work with the surreal lens so much of the time 
I think humans are very, very adaptable for better and for worse. And I think the thing about going to the same place eight hours a day, and if we want to talk about physical, literal offices, you know, you are suddenly restricting yourself to one main space, and then you are restricting yourself to a handful of people, and all of it becomes very, very magnified. And I think when you are, and you just become subjected to the whims of whoever your boss or bosses are, and that becomes, that can be very distorting. I mean, that yeah. that can be enough for most workplaces to set everything on a tilt. Um, but I just think when you reduce <laughs> the amount of space a person has and the amount of possible interlocutors, none of which you've really chosen, right? Like you maybe opted for the for the job, depending on your level of desperation and your level of choice, but you haven't picked your coworkers, you haven't picked your boss in many cases. And so now everything is just amplified. I mean, you you are a hamster in a little hamster cage for however many hours a day you are called upon to be at that job. And I think that is just gonna result in weird stuff because you are just focusing on the same stuff too much. I mean, if you look at a tile floor in a bathroom for too long, you will start to hallucinate, <laughs> you know? Like, like there, there is a reason that, solitary confinement yeah. is considered like a war crime it is a crime against humanity you can't leave people in the same space without and with the same people for too long and with the same people yeah. for too long so you just which is not to compare an office to solitary confinement but it's to say that people get weird when their space is reduced and when the amount of people they speak to is reduced and there is something about my, one of the north stars in writing this book was just the sense of this might as well happen yeah. And I and I think that is really the vibe that after you've been at, been at a job for long enough, you just sort of start to accept that like, well, <laughs> yep. Okay. What now? You know, like there's just an element of what fresh hell is this? But there's also, you know, you have to deal with it. You can't go anywhere. You're a hamster in your little hamster cage until, you know, six o'clock or whatever. That actually makes me think I just... Before before I reread Bartleby, I was rereading <laughs> Station Eleven because I just saw the TV show, and that's what you do if you're into books. <laughs> you reread the you reread the book after you watch the TV show. Um, and uh, she has this line pretty early on where she's talking about the traveling symphony, and it's it's something. It feels very. Tolstoy, because she's, she says, right, like, the, the problem with the Traveling Symphony was the same problem as with any group of people, basically, and starts laying out, like, one by one in these sort of intersecting ways, all of the conflicts between each individual, right? Like, this person hates this person who doesn't hate that person as much as they hate this person. And right. there's, I, I think there's a... I mean, that is sort of a workplace, too. I mean, it's more than just a workplace in, in that book. Right. But I think there, right, like, there's an element of that, of just, like people get weird when they're forced to interact with other people and they don't get to make those choices. Yeah, I mean, it is the conceit of talking about place. It is the conceit of no exit. It's not that yeah. anybody in no exit is, you know, Mussolini. It's just that it's three people who all kind of grind against each other and they're stuck in this room forever. And that and that's enough. That is just enough. It's just two other people who you didn't pick. And everybody hates one person more than the other and kind of wants to one person or you know <laughs> doesn't hate the other person as much and that's enough that's enough to drive you insane that's enough to be hell that's enough to be inter eternal torture and you know i mean that can be sufficient for many workplaces i think the thing that we're talking about with these reduced people and reduced spaces um and, and the limitations of that is also really really amplified by the slack yeah you yeah know, form because everything becomes so much 
louder because you know because you only have the words on the screen so and every, the emojis don't forget the emojis and, and the emojis <laughs> and the emojis which are rendered in words yeah, yeah so you only get textures and colors and sounds when other people describe them so we, we are left with a very limited sort of prop list and set list because there's only so many objects that get spoken about and only so many textures and colors so the motifs are right there and it's hard to yeah. miss them because yeah. there's only so because it's all you know it's a twenty-seven thousand word book and change yeah. um if you think like your average novel is like in the 50 to sixty thousand word range and like literary fiction at least you know you've got half the words so <laughs> everything the volume gets cranked up on all of it and i think that it's the same in, in terms of words and motifs as it is with character personalities right when yeah. if you you know uh yeah human beings were not meant to be around the same 20 people every day we tend to <laughs> we tend to try to make our sort of our our communities bigger than that for, for a lot of practical and social and i think uh just sort of sanity related reasons yeah, yeah sanity <laughs> and 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 health related reasons exactly well let's go let's talk about the characters a little bit because i, I had read that you created a style guide for each character's dialogue in the book and i would love to hear more about that <laughs> kind of like what's different about writing dialogue for slack versus spoken dialogue and what kind of things did you observe as you were like trying to create these these pa- these different patterns of slack conversations about how people try to distinguish themselves in a sort of closed online space like this I mean, in terms of Slack versus uh, dialogue, um, in my, I, I tend to write scripts where I, I joke that um, nobody gets to finish a sentence. So at least in Slack, everybody got to mostly finish their thoughts, right? Like nobody can really interrupt you all the way um, if you're determined to finish what you're saying. Yeah, dialogue, was, I mean, it just had to look different on the page. It couldn't be, from a practical perspective, it can't be a dozen characters who all type exactly the same. But also, right. if you're in a four-person group chat, probably you know, your friends have different styles of typing. Lord knows at work, people have different styles of communication, which is partially age, power, right? You have to find a way to communicate all of these dynamics very quickly. So how do people in different positions of power decide to either, you know, emphasize emphasize that or not? Like Doug Mm -hmm. has never met a period in his life who's the (laughs) boss of everything, right? He barely capitalizes anything ever. He doesn't have to. He cuts everybody's paychecks, you know? Like that's that is a way to display power and it is also a way that presumably he is busy or he is on the go and you know he's not trying to do it as a flex necessarily i mean you don't know this it's just what's on the page whereas other characters are much more formal um you know which might be a suck-up thing it might just be a you know a professionalism like it could just be the way that they are some people just like to have everything just so in their texts right you ever get a text from your aunt that it reads like an email Oh, yeah. Like, All the time. Like, you know, it starts with like, <laughs> hello, name, comma, and then it goes and then she'd still sign it herself, right? At the But like, it's like, you didn't have to do this like this, but okay. Which again, but that is the thing. The way that people type also yeah. is such a way to convey tone. And again, when, when you have those limitations, you need to have these different textures um, and you need to find ways to communicate meaning and intonation which means you know you're limited to line breaks and commas and do you change how you type when you're typing to your boss versus somebody who's more on your you know sort of collegial hierarchical level so and i mean i i know i do that and you know if you are a person who has slack at work or teams or whatever Discord. maybe there's a workplace that uses discord i don't know i don't know why that's like the, the fun one now but, uh, you know, you, you probably see these dynamics play out um, in those ways. So, again, it is a limitation, but it's also 
fun, but also it has to look different on the page because you're not going to read the same character. Like eventually your eyes are going to start skimming over character names and you're just going to want to be like, oh, this person talks like this. This is, yeah, this is Lydia because it's 18 exclamation points per sentence. Well, and actually that's something that I, I find really interesting in the audiobook, which we'll hear a clip from later, um, is that right at the beginning of each chapter in the audiobook, each person's first uh, first bit of dialogue is introduced with their name, and after that, you're right. After that, you're just sort of off to the races, and you have to keep up. And that's very much, I think, like you said, like the way that people are going to read something like this. Yeah, which I mean, you know, you're not in control of that. It was, you know, the audiobook presented, I think, some really unique <laughs> um, challenges, in as much as it's a full cast. I mean, it's basically a, a radio play. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it also has some of those weird texts hang-ups where yeah you have to memorize every you know you get to know different characters <laughs> uh tones of voice and everything you were talking about the power dynamics of a lot of the like ways people communicate in in a workplace environment and i was thinking about that i i work in the tech industry and um, for a company that makes software for other tech companies, not Slack, but we <laughs> use Slack. And I both think about that in terms of right, like what I observe online in Slack communications, including like what I do and just like in the ways that like we make our tech and the way this is the, the, the sort of similarities between a lot of these like workplace technologies that are coming up now. There's this push to make, to, to drive workplaces toward less formality, but it's right. Like it's very, it's fake, right? For, for lack of a better way to say it, right? Like the lack of formality doesn't erase the power structures. It, it seems sure more about performing a like lack of hierarchy, which is very, very much like what the tech industry does in general. Right. It is a sort of utopian ideal without any sort of structural or systemic uh, changes behind it. It is a move yeah. towards this idealized version of what a workplace should be but there's not it's not like there's a nationwide movement of flattening hierarchies and you know worker co-ops it's not like suddenly everybody's been it's not 1917 1918 in the soviet union that suddenly we don't all partially own the workplaces where we're at you know yeah. um even places that are unionized they're unionizing because of the hierarchy and to try and sort of make some of that imbalance less less pronounced um so yeah there's something really interesting about the artificiality of of the sort of uh cavalierness of, of communication and, and who does that serve <laughs> and what does that yeah. obfuscate um and, and also what does it facilitate because it lord knows it might be easier also to unionize if you're a bunch of remote workers in 30 different states but you can all talk on slack or you can all at least exchange signal numbers on slack to start a chat or something you know so it, it, it i i don't want to you know lead this totally towards it's all a surveillance state kind of thing but, oh, I, but I do it, is. <laughs> it, it, it is but there are very few tools that are not in some way double-edged and to go back to your novel since that is ostensibly the point of this conversation um <laughs> I, I think you see a lot of that not i mean not necessarily just in the in the communication but like the weirdnesses that come up in your novel seem very designed to emphasize that right like the weirdness of the bjark uh dog food campaign <laughs> the weirdness of um is it lydia who hears wolves the howling <laughs> yeah, yeah hears the howling. Hears howling all the time yep right like all these weird elements seem to come in in ways where we're like people are almost ignoring them right like that's a huge part of what makes it surreal is not just like Gerald got sucked into Slack or Lydia's hearing howling. It's everyone around them is just kind of like, eh, whatever. <laughs> right. 
here's the thing. If you had a coworker who was going on about that, how they're stuck in their computer or how they are hearing howling all the time, what are you going to do about it? I would like to think that I would go check on their body in their apartment. <laughs> but <laughs> if, if they ask, right? Yeah. But like, I don't know where yeah. my colleagues live, yeah. but generally, I am not personally equipped to extract someone yeah. whose consciousness has been uploaded <laughs> to the cloud from the cloud, I, I would have to call you or somebody I knew who worked in tech in some way. Well, and also it's above your pay grade, right? I think that's maybe an interesting yeah. part of it, too, is part of the reasons that we have all these like weirdnesses in our workplaces with people who we haven't chosen is because like when they start to get weird, I don't want to confront them. I just want to like get away from there. I just want to get out of that right, conversation. Yeah. You're trying to go home. You've got dinner plans. Exactly. You know, you've got you've got stuff to do. You're trying to watch a movie. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I don't have time to also get involved in whatever this is. My favorite conflicts are ones that are, you know, or, or my favorite sort of character weaknesses are ones that are super understandable and also not. It, it is the the intersection of like, no one could blame you for not doing this, but you will blame you if you don't do this, Like, <laughs> which is maybe outing myself as raised in a very, very sort of white bread Protestant kind of way. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, it's above your pay grade. It's not something you necessarily want to do. And again, you didn't choose these people. So, so going out of your way to help them out of something that sounds impossible, <laughs> and even if it is possible, you don't know how to fix it. Yeah. There's um, an enormous act of, act of grace going on there. And also to your point about the, the hierarchical thing, you, you mentioned the thing about um, writing a style guide earlier, yeah. and along with the sort of tonal style guide for how everybody was going to type and who's going to use capitals and who's going to use periods, which is just proof that I'm a maniac when I'm outlining. I also had a... Um, sort of susceptibility to weirdness scale mm. that also went along with every character. So who is sort of impervious to it? Like who does not have these kind of engagements? Or if they do, if they are made to face something this weird, it means that the weirdness is enormously powerful and, and sort, of, sort of unavoidable. And then who cannot put on their sneakers before they leave the house during the day without their sneakers, like without their shoelaces turning into eels or something, you know, like who <laughs> just every single thing, they're just super cursed. And the answer is Rob. Um, Rob is extraordinarily cursed. Lydia's obviously got some stuff going on. And so I had a little scale also of sort of who, who do things happen to most often, who will sort of see it and be like, oh, I don't have to do something about this. And then who's like, I don't know what that is. I, I pretend I do not see it or I actually do not see it. And if they are actually made to confront anything weird, it means that it is possibly taken like taken over the city of New York. It's like a full <laughs> end of Ghostbusters situation. <laughs> I like that. Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program On Being, hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. here at K-Squid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author and playwright Calvin Kosilke, whose debut novel, Several People Are Typing, takes place entirely in Slack. So another thing that I... I 
came across while I was prepping for this interview was uh, you have a column in Catapult where you write fictional author interviews. <laughs> and as an interviewer of real authors, I, I just I, like I have to ask you about it. So I, I'm really curious yeah. what those interviews are, are about for you. Like, what are, what are they doing? There's one so far because I am so behind on my deadline for the second one. It's a imaginary profile, basically, with um, yeah. D.B. Cooper, who is the famous skyjacker um, who was never caught and who I think probably died on the jump out of the plane that he skyjacked, but that's neither here nor there. I also think the art of the podcast interview is distinct from the art of the profile because the profile is very like you go into their home or like I got a burger with Jimmy Butler. I'm just listing like my favorite basketball player. And the whole thing becomes about how does their physical form and the setting we're in contrast or emphasize the narrative about them and how is my profile going to further or subvert the cultural or establish the cultural narrative about about this person right um and i just think there's it's this magnificent sort of choose your own adventure but there's there's you know very few of them that i have read that really sort of transcend what the form is and and I, i i like them as tools as characterization and i think that you can do one without the person actually being involved. And it, it becomes, I think the best profiles become essays that happen to use quotes from one person and a description of one person as the sort of backbone of whatever the thesis that the that the uh, reporter has. You know, it becomes a piece of cultural criticism sort of yeah. that bounces off of one person's existence in, in whatever form it is, their narrative, their legend, their vibe, their, you know, current impact, future impact, projected impact, former impact. But I think you can do that with figures that have already had that impact, even if the figures aren't talking to you. Why, why, why did that jump out to you? I mean, if you're, if you're doing all of this Googling and stuff, I'm curious to hear. I, there, there's a lot of internet detritus that I have put out there. So I'm curious as to why the catapult one struck you. The real answer is just that it's weird and I think I'm a weird person, so it's, it spoke to me. But I think, like, as as you were talking, one thing that struck me is I think there's something similar about podcast interviews. And this is this is for a radio show, but I come from a podcasting background, and I think I kind of bring that energy to a lot of my interviews anyway. Um, one thing that I think is really similar is that both that pro, that kind of profile and the, um, and the sort of podcast interview – they kind of they're um, in service of of parasocial relationships in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the and you know for the profile, a lot of it is because they're so typically written in the first person is like let me let me give you the insider view to my you know slightly more accessible relationship to this person so that you can feel like you have access to their deep dark secrets as well, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's yeah. sort of from a different angle, but they both have that. And something that's really interesting to me about choosing to do that to do that in a fictionalized way is right like that is the exposed belly of the parasocial relationship <laughs> right like it's saying like this thing that is sort of about um the ways that we understand access and the way and like what we think we know about celebrities and our desire to sort of constantly know more right well here's the thing we don't actually need them to do that <laughs> we we're right. making it all up on our own so why not just actually make it up Right. I make it up about people who are anonymous, who have chosen to never be identified, yeah. interviewed, profiled, people who have made it a point for one reason or another, whether they're dead or, you know, have Salinger. been in hiding for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. D- dead, in hiding, you know, never revealed themselves, yeah. you know, completely unknown, you know, and, and, and what does it mean? 
Yeah, and I, the parasocial relationship thing is, is a super interesting point, and it's intimacy, right? You're yeah. saying I had the chance to have a, a a kind of intimacy with a person that is people have limited ability to have intimacy with, and here what it here's what it might be like. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to go about it, but you the, the writer to the first person thing becomes the audience surrogate, yeah. right? You know, nominally, and again, I think sometimes it is in service of making a, an un, a seemingly untouchable person vulnerable, and sometimes I think it is in service of making a heretofore very regular person seem more untouchable and more special and more godlike. It, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about around around like Slack communication and the way and right like the ways that all of these new office technologies are 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 sort of pretending at informality and at you know everybody's mm-hmm. the same right like these are all techniques for for pretending at power either pretending pretending at power that you don't have or pretending that you don't have power that you do yeah and, and it, yeah it's it's an inter, it's an it's a really interesting form as a as a part-time journalist i like to play it you know doing things a little bit of, ahead of my skis but it's easier to do that in fiction in some ways to sort of test that out or to use journalism I don't want to say chops, but let's say experience to, uh, to, you know, see like, okay, well, let me try this in this different, in this different form then, you know, and just sort of blend them, <laughs> blend them until I come up with something. I don't know. Catapult is great. And my editor, Matt Ordelay is great. And if you are listening, Matt, I'm sorry, I really owe you the next essay. That's super late, but I will get it to you. <laughs> All right. Well, I think now's a good point, a good point for us to Listen to a little bit of the audiobook of your book so people can get a sense of it. Um, before yeah. we do, can I ask you to set up what we're going to hear? It's kind of a one-off scene, actually. It's delightful. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just a couple of the characters, the graphic designer and a couple of the other um, characters are on a call with a client, uh, I believe, right? And they're, they're, they're discussing sort of, uh, sort of their raison d'etre. It's sort of a thesis statement about what, what these characters think their, their jobs are. All right. Private chat. Nikki Pradeep. Louis C. Nikki, why do we have these calls? What is he even saying? Pradeep, I have no idea. I tune out whenever this dude talks. What's his role over there again? Louis C. He's their comms director. If they have a comms director, then why did they hire us? Because he isn't a very good comms director. You're both missing my point. I mean, what is he actually saying? It sounds like he's taking this call from the bottom of a well. If he's been stuck in a well for a while, that might explain his grasp of, like, the entire internet. I believe their offices are located in the greater Tampa area. Is this what Tampa sounds like? Please tell me this dude didn't just say MySpace. Please tell me I did not just hear him say that. Yes, this is what Tampa sounds like. I, I just love Lewis. I've just read this book so much, and now all the minor characters are my favorite. I just love Lewis so much. Please go on. <laughs> One, there was something that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about writing this your sort of process in the way that, like, you kind of start with, or, like, dialogue, when you when you start to hear the voices in your head, like, that's when you know it's time to, to sit down and write something. And I was thinking about that, about, right, like, it seems like there's a, a real immediacy in this book in general, right? Like it's it's not just that it's dialogue, it's that you feel like you're like in that moment, kind of as it's happening all the time. I was kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that. Like, is that is that part of what you're looking for there? Is it that immediacy and that? I think when I set out to write this, I set out to, a lot of my favorite books are books that gave me, I mean, this is, this is probably not specific to me, but they're books that gave you a big feeling, right? And I think mm-hmm. my favorite, I think the feeling I seek in, 
books or, or one of the ones I, I enjoy the most is I'm feeling like, what the f- just happened? What what just happened to me as a person in reading this? I think a, a great way to take somebody on that ride is, I mean, it, it's cheap stuff, right? Like present tense. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's you get sort of a limited toolbox. And I, I think it are, it's things like that immediacy, but also it's such a, it is a unique form. It is a book that teaches, I mean, if, if it works right, if I have done well, it teaches people the rules and that it breaks them just in time for you to have sort of gotten the hang of it. It starts to just break everything down. And I want people to feel in on it. I want people to feel in on the joke. I want people to feel like they are choosing to be taken for this ride and not that they are being yanked around. And so you need to develop that familiarity and that intimacy and that presence with these characters before that happens. So it feels like even if the book is something that happens to you, you as the reader feel like you know what's going on and you're not being pranked or surprised or like the joke isn't on you. The joke is on these people who you've been hanging out with this whole time. To that, like, you know, access is intimacy, right? Like sharing intimacy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You you get access to this intimacy, which is a way for you to get to know these characters, whether you like them or not. I, that's up to you. But you know, you you have to you have to be with these people so you can sort of go for the ride of this very weird sort of month to six weeks and change with them. I, I mean, I think it's so interesting because, you know, we talked about uh, we, we could talk forever about the fact that this is entirely written in Slack. Um, but I don't even think that it's right. Like, it's not just that it's all dialogue. Right. It's also that by setting it in Slack, it really is a really closed space. It eliminates everything else. I think, you know, it's easy to sort of skip over when I say it's written entirely in Slack, the the entirely part. But there are no other <laughs> descriptions. There's no right. Like there's no stage directions like you might have in a play. And I think the only real interiority we get with any character is the just dug things channel which is <laughs> where the, I the, love it right like the boss character keeps like these notes and they're everything from like you know picking up his dry cleaning to like mm-hmm. hmm, gotta think about firing this person right like <laughs> yeah yeah you get his stream of consciousness in it he's like i gotta buy pears and also yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, like, how do I deal with this office communication? Like he's sort of typing it out to himself, like, you know, to truly try to think through it on the page, as it were. But it's in, yeah, the hashtag just dug things channel. <laughs> but I think, like, I, I'm really interested to hear you talk about that, too, right? Like, this is this is a, a book where we're, like, really, like, everything is super immediate, right? There, You don't have... Other other than that one little just dug things, right? Like you really don't have a lot of glimpses into interior thought process. You only see it externally um, in the ways that characters are interacting. How did that impact the storytelling for you? And how did it change the ways that you thought about, about characterization in particular? It is a limitation, but it's also something that most of us, and I, I think most readers that pick up the book, even if, even if they're not used to Slack, you know, I, I always say, you know, you don't have to know Slack. If you've ever been in a chat room, in a group chat, if you've yeah. ever DM'd someone, you understand how to read this. If you've ever read a play, um, right, you know, you, you understand how to, how, how to read this thing. And in any kind of digital communication, most of us, including our great aunts who send us text messages that read like emails, still understand tone and they still under you know over text and how that can be difficult to read sometimes and even with you know i beefed a joke my my one of my best friends sent me a text with a joke in it yesterday and i totally misinterpreted it and i was like oh i'm so sorry that happened he was like no 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 no, that was a joke and i was like ah you know so it it, even intimacy doesn't always make the, the communication flawless but i think a lot of us know 
that we button things up a little bit when we are talking to when, if we have to text our boss or DM our boss for some reason. And I think a lot of us are familiar with the sort of texting through gritted teeth or sending an email where you are sending a lot of exclamation points and apologizing. But what you're saying is you're the jerk and I have to clean up <laughs> your mess, right? Like a lot of us sort of know what those things sound like. I mean, there's a, countless memes out there about, you know, using office communication as as a sort of shield and what it means, uh, you know, or, or, or the sort of, it is a different dialect functionally. It is a different way to communicate. All of this is to say people know how we text each other. People know how they text each other and, and they know what can be packed into a text message. If you send somebody a response to a text that says K, period, that means, you know, like that yeah. is always, that is a terse thing, you know, <laughs> and everybody kind of understands what that means. And K, no period, different than K, period. K with a period is like, we are getting a divorce, you know, <laughs> like that is as big. So on the one hand, it is a limitation. On the other hand, it's limiting yourself to a really, really common mode of communication that people understand the subtlety of and, and, and the nuances of. Uh, it doesn't feel too, too limiting because it lets you do a lot. And it also gives the audience something to, you know, it's readers like to feel smart. People like to feel smart. And, you know, you you like getting to, it, because of that presence that you talked about, you get to yeah. interpret that with the other characters in real time or watch the other characters misinterpret it and fuck up in real time. So I, I, I like what you said about people wanting to feel smart because I think it's so interesting, right? Like one of the things that really struck me as I was reading this and as I was thinking about the fact that there's there's no description, there's there's really just dialogue in this kind of limited way. There's no, right, like, there is no interiority is, oh my God, it turns out you don't need it, right? Like <laughs> the novel as a form is, is I think largely built around the fact that you can get that sort of interiority and, and like intimacy in different ways. But what's compelling about your book is that it really, right? Like exposes how much of that is just our own interpretation anyway. Mm -hmm. This is how we get to know each other, right? Like it's texting, you know, it's it's DMing, it's talking to people, you know, and un unfortunately, as much as uh, you would, many of us, just me, I will speak for myself, as much as I sometimes want to be like, hey, I don't know what's happening in your, in your head. So can you just also narrate everything mm -hmm. that just happened in this conversation? But like, can I get your inner monologue actually? Because uh, I actually want to know all of that. Like as much <laughs> as you would love to sort of tap into somebody's head like that, we can't. Um, so we fumble around with, with this, you know, the best that we can do, which is how we speak to each other. Yeah. I, I not look, novels are great. I, I've written a very weird one. I, I, I like a lot of novels that are not shaped like mine, but it, it's a way that we know how to communicate with each other. It's a way that a, a lot of people are already familiar with. So why not leverage that? You know, also people understand how stories work. And yeah. so as much as it seems like, oh, it's, it's got this gimmicky premise. It's like, well, yeah, but people know people know how a story works. People know what they're getting into, you know, like pe most people aren't getting lost with, with what's happening because we know how to follow these threads because we've been, you know, over the last 20 years, this has become a dominant mode of communication for many of us. Yeah. Well, and I, I know you really own the term gimmick, right? Like the label gimmick <laughs> on this. I've, I've, I've seen enough interviews with you where people like try to dance around that and you're like, no, it's a gimmick <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to know that, that you do totally own it. But I think there's something interesting, right? Like when you were talking about the sort of impetus for writing this, a lot of it was a tweet that assumed that it was just a gimmick. And you were like, all right, what if we take the gimmick and we make it not just a gimmick, right? Like we make it something real. 
so, so part of the impetus for this and, and the Slack for, which this is me finally sort of answering your first question, <laughs> was, yeah, seeing a tweet that said like something to the end, I've not been able to find the tweet and it dogs me. It will dog <laughs> me to my grave. Maybe I, I don't think I dreamt it, but maybe I, who knows. Um, but um, it was a tweet that was like the, the great millennial novel will be set entirely in Slack. And I do not think this is the great millennial novel. I actually think uh, Tony Tula Tamudi, who was a, a friend and sometimes mentor and also took my author photo, wrote, I think I think his book uh, <laughs> maybe has that title. But, you know, for, uh, my, my knee-jerk reaction to seeing that tweet was, oh, God, that would suck. I would, I would hate that book. And then it was, no, wait, what if it didn't suck? What if it was awesome? What would that look like? <laughs> And not just thinking, okay, what would this be? But then taking it one step further and going, well, not, not just how would it be fun or how would you do it, but how would you do it in a way that maybe nobody would ever want to do it again? <laughs> maybe, maybe people would be like, oh, this is, um, this is done. Uh, there, there's a great podcast called Cocaine and Rhinestones. And uh, the second season is all about this country singer, George Jones. And one of the great bits that the narrator says about it is uh, there was a thing about George Jones that People didn't like to cover his songs, like his original songs, mm. even though country music was so much made up of, of people covering each other's songs. And it was like, well, when George Jones sings a song, it stays sung. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, no, I don't think that this is the only Slack novel or the only novel that can be in this form. This is not even the first, you know, sort of internet based or digital based novel. It will certainly not be the last. I don't think I've done it that successfully, <laughs> but I wanted to. I wanted Take it to seriously. Do it take it seriously and, 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 and go a little over the top with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, th I think you succeeded in, in a great way. <laughs> the second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful, and call-ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters, Sunday evening at 6 on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author and playwright Calvin Kosilke, whose debut novel, Several People Are Typing, takes place entirely in Slack. We were talking earlier about how like there's not a lot of interiority in this book or, or, or right, like you're, you're sort of interpreting it, you're forced to interpret it. And of course, that made me want to talk about the one place that is one of my favorite moments in the book where I think you do start to get something that is at least sensual, not in the, you know, sensual in the literal sense of it, right? Like it involves the senses, which is mm -hmm. the moment when Slackbot takes Gerald into a gif of a sunset. So mm -hmm. tell me about that. What are you trying to do in that scene? It's a set piece. It, it's, it's the, it is the one sort of um, flashy like stage moment. You know, uh, it's, it's, the, it's my costume moment. It's my chandelier breaking in the Phantom of the Opera, right? The chandelier mm. falling and <laughs> this is this is the way that, I, you know, I could do that. I've got a rule when I'm um, drafting or when I'm thinking about a, 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 a work where if something makes, if I have a thought and it makes me laugh, it has to go in. It has to at least go in the first draft. I can cut it later, but if I laughed out loud thinking about it, it has to go in. <laughs> the sunset scene was one of those where I was like, <laughs> like I like blurt laugh thinking of it. I was like, ah, it's so goofy. And I was like, actually, that rules. I got to put that in here. I, I, I just keep calling it the inception noise page. Like, uh -huh. like, that, like um, this is great radio um, where, you know, it's just a bunch of, I mean, what it actually is, is I wrote 
a bunch of different titles for sunset gifts and then ran them through a bunch of different corrupter <laughs> um, <laughs> tools until it's this sort of mess. But if you want to sit and read through them, you'll see like sunset.gif, beach sunset.gif, tropical sunset.gif, <laughs> Jimmy Buffett sunset, yacht sunset, sunset and palm tree.gif, you know, .gif. Uh, it just endlessly just thinking of a bajillion of them. Yeah. Um, which, you know, again, you're you're limited to what people describe to each other, what they say to each other. And here is a moment where the book is trying to make you feel or see or experience what Gerald is feeling or seeing or experiencing. And, you know, it, it looks it looks wild on the page and it sounds wild in the audiobook. I, I, again, I, I, I like books that personally, I, I really enjoy books that make me sort of be like, what is happening? What's going on? Like, I'm kind of confused. I'm kind of psyched because I'm confused. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. I don't know what's happening anymore. And this, this is a little bit my attempt to, to do something like that. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's experiential, right? Like you, you do experience it as he's experiencing it with all the sort of confusion that comes with it. And, you know, without spoiling too much, right? Like he does describe the experience later, but it is mm -hmm. in a way where you can tell how much it kind of defies description and how how weird it is and terrifying and also joyous, I guess. <laughs> it's it is, I think, transcendent in the sort of big That's sense a good of word. The You're word. a writer. <laughs> <laughs> right, but not not in the way that people I think I think that word has a almost purely positive connotation. And um I don't think the idea of I mean, I think this book is a lot about how transcending your standard senses is maybe not all it's crack up to be. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I loved that that sort of touches on is is the way that this book explores relationships that we have with our bodies and the ways that like technology mediates those relationships. Because, of course, Gerald is forced to think about his body in new ways, in some ways, like for the first time. Um, <laughs> once he's separated from it. And I think he really comes to appreciate what it means to care for his body a lot as a result of like not having it and having somebody else do that caring for him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, talk to me about, about the body of it all. Sure. He, yeah. He really misses his legs. Um, <laughs> yeah. My, 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 my joking, you know, my, my half joking, I guess, description of this book is it's about how the only thing worse than having a body is not having a body. Mm. Um, and I am a trans person and I started writing the, that early, those early terrible blog posts that would become the sort of backbone of this book um, right around when I was first coming out. Um, and, and, and well, not, not even first coming out, first starting testosterone specifically, which is really first inhabiting my body on purpose yeah. specifically and, and having a lot of changes happening to it and being hungry and having more energy and being invigorated and being excited to be in my body for the first time, but also a little bit mourning, no longer having the superpower of being super checked out of my body. Mm. And that lets you pull all-nighters differently. It lets you, you know, I, I, I did a bunch of Taekwondo when I was younger, right? And I had a very high pain tolerance for reasons that are sort of obvious now. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's, it, it, it is, it is not preferential to how I am now in, in, in my experience. I really love having this goofy body and I love eating and I love, you know, just working out and being physical, right? This mortal coil, some upsides, meatball yeah. subs, a lot, of, a lot of meatball sub talk in the book. Great reason to stay, to be on planet Earth is to be able to experience those. I mean that sincerely. But there, there was also a little bit of mourning some of the unique parts of being pretty checked out of, of having a body. And, and so 
that was the way I was grappling with that early on um, and being able, I, I'm really glad that I didn't return to it until years later, until I was a bit more settled and had frankly just more distance and wasn't writing from such a raw place, but that I yeah. had all of this very raw material. I think every significant by which I mean like sort of lengthwise or shape-wise uh, work will get its pound of flesh from you. And it was really nice to have that pound of flesh sort of pre-carved uh, for a later version of me to pick up and be like, oh, how nice. Yeah. <laughs> how nice that this is already here and I can wor work with it a little bit more and, and finesse it and put it into this, you know, the, the shape of this of, of this of this book. So yeah, it, it comes a little bit from being a trans person. Um, but I, I think I don't think trans people have the corner on uh, having weird relationships with our bodies. I think there's a whole bunch of people, possibly the most of us, who have really <laughs> weird relationships to our bodies or even just people who would prefer to not uh, have them fail one day and die. We all have to do that and that sucks. So, you know, as much as we we're talking about the lack of lowercase f freedom that, yeah. that workplaces offer us, there is, a, there is a little bit of the capital F freedom <laughs> that uh, we can never quite escape our our physical forms and um you know this book posits even if we did it would suck <laughs> well it's interesting hearing you talk a, a, like talk about this and talk about your your sort of own relationship with your body and how it's evolved and going back to some of the stuff and you know feel free to tell me to shut up if i'm imposing a narrative but like some of the oh, stuff no, about right like so much of your writing does have that immediacy and that experiential quality and it is in a lot of ways very embodied <laughs> even when <laughs> it's taking place in slack yeah, you 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 want you want to be with them, and and you know again, I, I, this is part of why I'm glad to have written it, like five years, you know, after yeah. the sort of initial some of the initial stuff was out there, and really there's some stuff from those early blog posts that I keep making fun of that made it almost word for word into this. So there's a lot of it that got finessed and, and changed up, but I, I am glad to to have been able to have a bit more distance and to be you know also be a person who knows that <laughs> you might miss your legs if you did not have <laughs> legs for a long period of time you might be like I don't know why specifically that but I do miss them uh you know and 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 that you know a meatball sub is a great reason to um to be alive at a sunset you know again I I, I was joking earlier about there only being so many tools to tell a story and there's you know there are a lot of pleasures on this earth, but I think the categories of pleasures that are available to us are all pretty, uh, you know, is, is actually a pretty short list. And, and many of them are pretty simple. Well, uh, two final questions because we're, we're low on time. First one, I feel like in some ways it's a it's a boring question generally, but I'm very interested to hear your answer to it with respect to this book. Like, what were your influences here? If anybody has read any Carol Churchill they will maybe clock immediately that there is a lot of Blue Kettle in this. Um, her, her play, Blue Kettle, which is uh, incredible, and Carol Churchill is, is an incredible playwright. Um, I don't even know where to start with recommendations. I guess the, the collection of uh, plays Blue Heart, which in which Blue Kettle is, is, is a great one. Uh, that's a really, really direct influence. <laughs> Goodness, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Uh, Italo Calvino, If Anna Winter's Not a Traveler, huge you know, just some, just, you know, love some postmodernism, love a gimmick, um, which, you know, again, if it's, uh, if it's elegant enough, it doesn't get called one, but uh, they are what they are. I think those are the big ones. I, I think I, I, every once in a while, I will get a pale fire comparison. And then I feel like I have to make the sign of the cross or something, which is not <laughs> anything I've ever done in my life that I'm like, please don't actually compare me to Nabokov. I feel like that will put some kind of a hex on my life, but um, I do really like pale fire. I think I think those are kind of the big ones, though. I think I had really recently experienced Blue Kettle and Devana Winter's Night of Traveler and 
you know, I also, I will just say like weirdos on the internet, <laughs> frankly, like, like just like weird people on the internet who do weird internet stuff, like just people on Twitter who will just post like snippets of like a work in progress or something. Like I am so inspired by Twitter users with handles like space twinks, uh, sincerely weirdos on the internet. Just like there is no rabbit hole. I will not dig all the way down to, to sort of get that weirdness. And there's a lot of Gerald talks about a lot of going down weird Facebook rabbit holes or, or, or something or, or winding up on parts of the internet he had no business being on. I think it would be dishonest for me to say that that's not a big part of my my process. <laughs> um, and so the other question I want to ask is what's next for you? What are you working on these days? Throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. But the next book-shaped thing, I guess, uh, it, in, in lieu of wanting to give too much away is... Um, uh, I've been describing it to people as what if David Cronenberg directed Airbud? <laughs> Very good. So that's look out for that one. <laughs> it's about sports. It's about sports and also bodies <laughs> and stuff. That's what I got. Calvin Kasolki, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. You can learn more about Calvin from his website, calvinkasolki.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at CJ Kasolki. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Linear Sammons. He also wrote our theme.